Father, Lord, gracious Savior, we ask for your words to be spoken to hear as we teach from your word. Let us hear from the Holy Spirit what you're speaking through your word about your son, Jesus Christ, and about how we are to be a church in, in today's times. Give us wisdom and give us power from the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, so this morning we are continuing in the book of Acts. If you're unfamiliar with liturgical terms or, or signs, we are in uh, our, our general season of the church calendar where the, uh, the pyramids are green. And that means there's no direct teaching. It's usually a time for the church to teach on given topics or uh, what we're doing is going through the book of Acts. And I hope, and my hope is, uh, as at least while I'm up here teaching on Acts, is to bring about a higher ecclesiology, uh, a higher view of the church, and especially in, in the culture that the church is in. And so we're going to look at that today in Acts. Um, mainly what, what I want to bring out is, uh, is that the Christians are the solution to a crumbling society. Uh, my wife graciously made an outline for you guys this morning. Hopefully it's systematic and you can follow it a little bit easier and and you'll know very clearly if I start rambling. Um, and so uh, as we get in today, I want us to keep in mind as we're going through this, the book of Acts and we're seeing what in the inception of the church and in the bringing about of God in the new covenant is that he providentially put the Acts in a very wicked, very dark society that was toppling on top of itself. That, was, that the culture just itself was crumbling. Um, and so when we look through the, the Great Commission and to the beginning of Acts, um, even prior Jesus was, was telling his disciples that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so he made direct statements about his church that is going to continue to flourish and grow and it's not going to stop. We recite in the Nicene Creed every week that his kingdom is never ending. It will continue. And there's, if you notice, there's not a sentence in the Nicene Creed that says, and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and we're going to wait a couple thousand years, and his kingdom will have no end. It's when he ascended, sat at the right hand of God, was uh, enthroned and coronated, his kingdom was coming. Jesus Christ himself said that the kingdom was in the midst of you while he preached. And so the church which is the extension. The church is not the kingdom, and the kingdom is not the church. But who brings about the kingdom on earth? It is the church, the people of God, the new, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Israel. And so against the church, the gates of, of Hades or the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Christ makes that promise. And we're summing up the book of Acts in one, one verse, Acts 1.8, we should keep this in mind throughout the entire series of Acts as we have, um, doesn't matter if I'm up here or John Gray or, or Josiah or Sam Jimpoon or anybody else, uh, we should keep in mind Acts 1.8, but and Christ's promise was, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's Christ's promise, that you will be filled with the Spirit, you will receive power from on high, and you will be my witnesses. And when you do that, you'll be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And so that's also recapitulated in the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. It's not making disciples in all nations. It's making disciples of the nations, entire nations submitting to the lordship of Christ. And so that's our, what we're viewing as we, we're systematically going through the book of Acts. And we're going to see that as we get to uh, uh, chapter 6. And so if you remember last week, uh, we got seven new guys on the scene, which were the first deacons. And so the church is taking that system of the early synagogue and having elders and deacons, and it's getting a little less organic, so to speak, and it's moving and becoming more structured. And in that, the apostles continued to spread the word. Um, it came, became to increase, and the number of disciples uh, increased after that. Who would have guessed? You preach the word, people come to Christ, you make disciples, and, it continu- and people continue to get discipled and come to Christ. It's a pretty good system. And so in the next thing that happens that we're looking at today that we read is that Stephen is out with some type of public ministry, and he is is in such a way that the Jews are coming against him. Um, but he's, we want to kind of remember culturally what the early Christians were up against. And so uh, they were put in the midst of this crumbling, the Roman and the Jewish society. And so just through Jesus' prophecies, through Matthew 24, 25, um, about the coming destruction of the temple, that's what he was being accused of saying, is that Jesus is going to come and destroy this temple, and he's, he's going to change the laws of Moses. And, uh, well, Jesus did talk a lot about uh, the temple being destroyed and, and a new covenant uh, coming. But in the broader culture in Rome, I just want to look at what, where were the Christians placed, and why did God providentially put them in a society that was just so horrendous, so horrendous uh, and how it was just toppling on, ta- on top of itself? And so if you could recount, or if you can just historically go back and look at the Roman culture, in the first century, uh, uh, and we're going to look at how it kind of um, mirrors America, there was a good book that I was recommended like eight years ago that I never read that... I was thinking last night, I was like, man, I wish I'd read that book. It's called Are We Rome? And uh, it was recommended to me. You can find it uh, uh, in various places, but uh, I was like, man, I wish I would have taken that suggestion like eight or ten years ago to read that book. But I didn't. Uh, but in, in Rome, in the Roman colonies, um, and just a little bit more specifically in Jerusalem, there was going to be wars and, and civil wars, and the Romans were going to fight them and come and destroy them in about 40 years after Christ's ascension. But in the broader context of Rome, uh, just the economic troubles, the rising inflation and taxation. And we're going to see that Rome is, is way worse than us. We've got it pretty bad, but uh, Rome was closer to a collapse than, than we are. Um, if you look at our culture right now, and what I'm going to make the case is that our culture is, is in a moral and societal freefall, and God has placed us here to be the solution. We're not here to just wait till it crumbles and then, well, I hope God builds something and maybe he'll just come back. We're here to build something that's going to last uh, uh, for generations, for hundreds of years. And so just the economic troubles. Uh, currently in, in, in the States, if, uh, if we have people live streaming from India, uh, if you look at the difference between your, if you're a middle-class American and you look at the difference between your gross income and your net income, just on your paycheck, it's about 30%. But if you factor in gas tax, property tax, 
school levy taxes, which are part of your property taxes, sales tax, capital's gain, capital gains tax, and uh, death tax, birth tax. Uh, you factor in all of that, it's closer to 50 to 60% of your income gets taxed in the middle class. That's not sustainable. Uh, that Rome was facing the same problems. Overexpansion um, of military and military overspending. Not going to go into a lot to that, but this created tons of inter-society inter wars of Rome keep trying to expanding but not having the money, an overinflated military, uh, having way too much power. Um, and then the government corruption, which all of this leads to Rome's government corruption and political instability. And we see that today. In, in I think it was about the mid to early part of the second century, in the span of 75 years, Rome had 20 different Caesars. I'm like, man, they just, what did they just, did they get impeached? Uh, you, you could say that. Uh, they were continuing to kill each other, and the next general would rise up for a few years until another political adversary wanted, within Rome wanted to uh, assassinate that Caesar and then rise up. And so they had 20 in the span of 75 years. And lo and behold, that does not create a lot of societal or, or for the citizens, a lot of trust in their government. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Um, they were, essentially what you're seeing is the government was just hungry for power. They just wanted, uh, they just wanted the power as these, as these seizures kept rising, which led to uh, a huge crumbling of the society. You know, if we, if we look at that today, uh, just in the political sphere, there's almost no altruistic, uh, on any state or national level, politicians who have any coherent Christian worldview, um, and it doesn't seem like they have any coherent worldview besides humanism. And so we have that today, just tons of government corruption and political instability. Almost nobody trusts our political system, uh, and it's waning and waning and waning. And so what God's doing in the first century, he didn't put the Christians into a society where it was flourishing and it was like, um, you know, when Israel came into the promised land and the, the, the plants were already there, the ground was already tilled, and they just had to kick out uh, the Canaanites, that's not what he was doing with the church. Uh, the church, although the Canaanites, their society was not too great in themselves, but they took over. But, and so... God didn't put them in the midst of Rome where it was flourishing and great economics, great moral culture, great family culture, great political culture, great work ethic, and then plant the Christians in the new covenant and say, here you go, this would be a good fit for you, and just you know, work your way and find your little piece of the pie. God didn't do that. He, his purpose in the inception of the church was to one of the most wicked societies and the most darkest societies put the source of light. And so 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar of truth. And so without the church being the church, there's not going to be any truth in the broader culture. And so this is how God normally works through uh, when, when he does new beginnings, when he creates. When Noah got off the ark, he wasn't like, wow, this is just really great land for we got trees everywhere. It was a wasteland. He had to build from, from the bottom up. Um, David didn't come really into a great political 
seeing even though God had anointed him as king, there were uh, about 100 or 200 years of the judges where there was just like total immorality everywhere, and everyone just did as they pleased. And then they had uh, their first king, Saul, and that didn't work out so well. And now David's coming in, even though with built cities and and all kinds of things, but he had to essentially start from the from the ground up. Uh, I was listening. We were uh, Noel and Lily and I were driving to my brother's house in northern Indiana this weekend, and uh, I was just flipping through the radio station and found a very country uh, gospel station, which with all country slang and and mannerisms and accents, and it was great. But there was a pastor that was just recounting Bonhoeffer's life, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the uh, during the first and second, uh, mostly the Second World War in Germany, and he was almost the only prominent Christian in Germany that moved back to uh, help the church, and he was very vocal about it, and he ended up getting getting martyred for it, but that was his calling, and so that's what Christ does. That's what God does in His church. He is placing the church in the midst of darkness to be light. And so that's what we want to look at today, and that's our position uh, in America's freefall. And we have a, just a, a moral freefall in our country today with our fiat currency, our military and police overreach, political unrest, and untrust. It's, it mirrors Rome in the early century very well. And so I want to look at what was Stephen's, uh, what was Stephen's response. Uh, he had wisdom in the face of persecution. And so what was Stephen's response? Well, he had some kind of uh, uh, public ministry. They came specifically after Stephen. They didn't just pick some random guy and go after him. Uh, that's, not how, that's not how war works. That's not how opposition works. They don't just, you don't just pick uh, unstrategic beachheads to, to fight. They went after Stephen because he had a public ministry. He was doing miracles, signs, and wonders. And I believe that he had some kind of preaching ministry. That's not clear. Um, in, in the text, but Stephen was very ready to, to preach the gospel, as we'll find out in the next chapter. I'm really hoping by the end of ordinary time that we actually get done with Acts, uh, but not at this pace. But the next chapter is a, is a big one. So, so Stephen had a response. He was ready, right? There was opposition clearly brought against him. He didn't back down from the fight, right? It says that the... Um, that the men of the synagogue, the Jews, rose up to dispute with him, right? They, they were bringing the fight to him. He wasn't necessarily bringing the fight to them. He was doing good works, preaching, healing, doing miracles. Uh, but when the time came, he didn't keep silent, right? He didn't let them run all over him. He didn't let, oh, there's opposition. Yeah, that's, that's bad. You're right. I'm sorry. I'll just, maybe I'll discuss this in private and, and go home. No, they brought a public fight to him, and he... And he, he met the match. And so Stephen spoke out of the spirit of wisdom. They couldn't, and it says that they could not withstand the spirit and wisdom with which he was speaking. Mind you, when Jesus taught with authority, right? He wasn't like the scribes and the elders as he went around preaching and teaching. He taught with authority. There was a spirit about him that made people listen. Uh, there was a lot of, um, there's a certain sect of Christians today uh, promoting manhood. And which is all good, and they're using the a lot of them use the term this, this gravity or this gravitas of men. He had some kind of weight and bearing about him that when he spoke, people listened, right? And then when uh, 
And then Stephen obviously gets persecuted here, and they, they drag him off. And so Stephen's response was he was ready. He was a part of a church. He was serving in the church. He had some type of public ministry, and he was ready to speak. He was ready to speak out. He was ready even for persecution. And so we often think that when there's people even just disagreeing with us, not even in a, in a persecution sense, that we take a step back, that we, you know, even in our culture, um, depending on what kind of family you were raised in, it's even hard to disagree with people and still come out uh, in some type of unity. We have interpreted that disagreement is, is some type of persecution. That's not always the case. It was with Stephen, but uh, persecution isn't a bad sign. It's actually the opposite. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, it is a good sign, right? Christians are often persecuted because they are the answer, right? When the enemy, when, when the world, when people who are controlled by the flesh, who are deceived, when they see the light and they love the darkness, they don't want it. And our Lord even promises in Matthew 5, 10 through 16, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He goes on, which is a corollary. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus, just in the Sermon on the Mount, is saying, he's, these aren't just random sayings put together. He's putting, when you're persecuted, you should rejoice. You are blessed. But don't be persecuted except for righteousness' sake. And don't be persecuted except for on his account. But when you are, you are the salt of the earth. The salt, if it has lost its taste if it's lost its, its righteousness, if it's lost its effect in preserving the culture and the world, is useless. It's not good for anything. If you pick up your salt shaker at home and put it on your vegetables, because that's what needs the most added flavor, we all know that, then, and if it loses its saltiness, and it just tastes like the vegetables, you don't want it as much. The salt is worthless. You throw it out, Right? Right? How is it going to be restored? It's no longer good. And if you're not being the light, if a church isn't being the light, and if it's getting persecuted and is backing down and isn't rejoicing and isn't continuing the ministry with good works and, and such, how is it going to be the light? It can't, right? It won't be the light. And so oftentimes when there is persecution that arises or there's opposition, it is a good sign. It's a good sign that you're hitting the right buttons. And especially in a moral, in a culture that is in a, in a moral uh, the decline and is toppling on, on top of itself. And so Stephen was treated just like Christ. And we shouldn't expect anything else from the early Christians and going on throughout, throughout history. They brought up false witnesses. 
They brought up false accusations. They did what they could to, to put a stop to them, right? And so the enemy, worldly people, um, and when we talk about enemy, just remember that we were all enemies of Christ. We're not saying uh, go start a civil war out there. That's not how the kingdom of God is, is advanced. But the people who are deceived, who are under the control of, of darkness, under Satan's realm, under the, uh, what First John calls the, the, the king of this world, or Ephesians 6, the prince of the power of the air, when there are people who are so deceived, who hate the light, they've only got a few tricks up their sleeve. They don't have a whole lot. They're like unreasoning animals, and their aim is to first bark, and then they bite. Right? They try to force silence. They try to, that's what they were doing with Stephen in, in disputes. They try to force silence, and if that doesn't work, they'll uh, get them arrested and, and try to silence them that way. Right? Um, and so they came after Stephen to try to dispute with them. And so he must have had some type of public ministry. Um, and, and Jesus was hitting all the right buttons when he came preaching. When he came preaching largely to the Jews, uh, he was preaching the gospel and exposing their hypocrisy. And so Jesus taught with authority. He had a public ministry. Um, it wasn't, you know, if you think from a, a personal wellness standpoint, it wasn't the greatest idea to come into Jerusalem where it was controlled by the Jews and they had their own police force and their own authority and say, all you people who are in charge are a bunch of hypocrites. You're whitewashed tombs. Uh, you guys try to make people sons of God and you actually make them twice as much sons of hell. That wasn't like a, a great way to advance in a personal, um, in, a, in a way, the, his own personal goals that we kind of think of humanistically, right? But he came with speaking authority and speaking the truth. And oftentimes, the, the lawyers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all came to first try to dispute with him. And so Stephen is doing the same thing. He's, this is, when we even just read that in the scriptures, we should see that Stephen is, is mirroring the same ministry that Jesus is doing, even with wonders, signs, and miracles. And so... Uh, so he was treated like Christ, right? Jesus was hitting all the right buttons in, in that culture. And so John three nineteen through 20, <clears throat> um, the apostle John says, I'm sorry, this is, I'm sorry, in the, uh, uh, quoting Christ, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest their works be exposed. And so that's how you know that you're going to get, if, you're, if we are a church, we're a community of people who are a pillar and buttress of truth in a society, in, in our local society, or, or, uh, or even outreaching the, the Western church in American society, that we know that those who are in darkness and, and who the Lord hasn't called to repent and expose their works to darkness and come to Christ, they are going to love the light, or I'm sorry, love the darkness. When people who are in darkness love darkness, they want more darkness. And when light comes, they shield their eyes because they want more darkness, All right? The darkness hates the light. Uh, but the Lord has ordained that the light shine in the darkest places. And so that's where the Lord has put us today, and many of us are, are worried, and we see a lot of things in just a moral decline in America, in our economy, in our morals, and 
in, in, in tons of ways. Um, but Christ, the Lord, has put us here to be the light, to be a beacon of hope, to be a society that is going to not just withstand the toppling of our culture if it continues, but to rebuild it and to build something that is going to last for several generations. And so our Christianity is worthless if we're not being salt and light. And so when we're going through the book of Acts and we're seeing how Paul and Peter and all the apostles are planning churches in various societies, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to look at various books through different lenses and different themes and because I can't really think more than like two thoughts at once, really. Some people are better at that, but I'm not. And so to read an entire book with one main idea in, in play or one paradigm, and then you can do that for the whole, whole books of the Bible. And so you look at uh, like what Paul was doing in, in the book of Titus in the island of Crete, in the nation of Crete. And he says that they are uh, lazy beasts, evil, gluttonous liars, and, and they all know it. <laughs> and they don't care. And that's who they are, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and Paul's coming and writing to Timothy, or I'm sorry, writing to Titus about how to have the kingdom of God be taking over, over Crete and how to bring about light. And he does that in a very systematic way. And, uh, and it's all centered around the church being the church. And so in our culture, are we hitting the right buttons? Are we as a church hitting the right buttons? Um, you know, it's one thing to be a lone ranger out there, which you'll never survive if you're just a lone ranger out there trying to spread light. You're just like a little match. Uh, you might provide a little bit of light, but uh, uh, people who go out alone and always operate independently just don't, can't be that influenced. That's even what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 of if you put a lamp on a stand where there's multiple candles, you'll shine more, shine more light. <clears throat> But Ephesians 5, Paul says again, in, in the same context of, uh, of the church being the light and exposing darkness, Ephesians 5, 11 through 13, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak about things that they do in secret. So wait a minute, do we expose them? Do we not talk about them because it's, it's shameful, or do we expose them? Uh, but when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. And so no one else is going to expose them. That's the church's job. No one else is going to expose the works of darkness, the moral decline, and, and what in our culture, because no one else has been ordained by God to do that. Nobody else has the truth. Nobody else has the light. And so um, that's in just, a, uh, in just one instance of why we have uh, pro, the pro-life movement in some sects shows very graphic images of abortion. And I think that's a good thing because it is exposing what is done in the darkness. The, the pro-death movement, the abortionists, don't want them to see, don't want the broader culture to see what is going on. And if you can keep it a secret, then, or if you can keep it hidden, it's less likely for people to think about it and see the evils of it uh, and, and come to truth. The same thing was done in, <clears throat> in the slavery movement in, in, in Europe, where they would come and show uh, by images or books or testimonies of, of what it was like to be a slave and how many people, how many of the people died just as they physically captured them and kept them on the boats uh, to bring them back for the slave trade. 
and it was a horrendous thing. And part of that was just exposing how evil it was. And so, um, and so we are called to expose the darkness. We are the light. When the light shines in a dark room, uh, you can sometimes get around in a dark room and you kind of feel yourself away and you're like, oh yeah, I kind of think about like, here's a bed or a table or you bump your head or you bump your uh, shin on the coffee table and you don't really, you kind of get a feel for the room, but when the light comes in, you actually see it for what it is. And that's the, the metaphor that Christ and, and the apostles and Paul are using of we're going to expose the darkness. And so in a, in a crumbling society and the moral freefall that we're in, you should take hope. That should make you think like, oh, really? We're in this like total moral decline. Most of Americans don't even know how to, uh, know, don't even know what gender is or don't even know how much taxation is going on or, uh, uh, or, or anything. It's all just humanism. It's all just whatever you think is right. We're in the book of Judges again. And that should, you should go, oh, okay, good. Yes, it's our time. This is a great place to be light. It is ripe for the pickings, right? You should see the, providential, the providentiality of a God that he's placed us in a society that is clearly on a moral decline. Uh, we're in a great time of pruning. That's a good thing. <laughs> Prune the branches so that they'll be more fruitful. The harvest is plentiful. The fields are white for harvest. And so we as the church should take great hope. We should... We shouldn't have this pessimistic view of, oh man, just the society is going so bad and, uh, and so many things and, and whatnot and the government takes all my money. Uh, not saying rejoice in that, but uh, <laughs> that would be very hard. But give thanks to God that he's put you here to be, to be the solution. And if you're not the solution, then uh, your salt is worthless. And so the Christians in Acts were in a, a much worse societal state than we are. And they were there for a couple hundred years. And so the solution is, is the church. If we see just, we get 40 years of the book of Acts right before uh, into the late 60s, maybe early 60s, 80, of, of the account of the first church in Acts. And that is our model and that is our hope, is that if, as we imitate the book of Acts, as we listen uh, and use that as a, as a, uh, strategy for how a church is supposed to be, then we see how um, how Christians take over culture. But it took about 300 years for the Christians to even become a legal religion without being persecuted. And so, take hope. Uh, this is where we're at. And so, Stephen himself was a man under authority. He was a disciple. He wasn't a lone ranger. He was part of a church. Um, he was serving. He was leading. And God raised him up, and he was just ready. You know, unfortunately, we don't see much more about Stephen, because um, <laughs> if you haven't read forward, please read the book of Acts, you know, at least up until we're at every week and continue it. But if you don't know what comes in chapter 7, uh, he doesn't make it very, very much longer. Um, but uh, Stephen, we don't get, he wasn't anybody special in particular. He was a man who was serving, and he was raised up as a deacon, and he, but he was, he was an apostle. It wasn't just a top-down uh, leadership scheme that, that the Lord used. These were common people, and they were raised up, and, and Stephen was ready. And so we should be building something that 
something for Christ's church and his kingdom that our children's children's children will inherit. And so one of the ways, one of the reasons why we get pessimistic is because we look very narrow-sighted. But if you were to just look at history, particularly church history from the first century, in 500-year segments, you can kind of see a steady increase of, of just fruitfulness in the entire world through the spread of Christianity. And there are periods where at about after 500 years, you know, uh, about after 500 years from after Christ ascended, we have, you know, Christianity is flourishing and then it goes into the uh, Middle Ages and it rises back up in about 500 years and then it goes back down and with the height of the Roman church and then after 500 years it comes back up and we've got the Reformation and and that brings us to uh, 2000. 2080. And so that's not a very long time, 2,000 years. Uh, that's only four 500-year segments. And just look at history in a 500-year segment, and that might just be something the Lord uses to help you become a little bit more optimistic in your eschatology and in, in your uh, thoughts of advancement of God's kingdom here on earth. <clears throat> and so, uh, so do that. Isaiah 2 talks about all the nations are going to stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Because we've got the law, because uh, because we'll mediate between between nations, and so there should be a very optimistic view that we have. And so the Bible doesn't give exact answers of what we're supposed to do this afternoon to advance God's kingdom. Maybe it's pass out flyers uh, to invite people to the church to get discipled to. Uh, hear the gospel for that to become more real in their lives and to see the lordship of Christ grow in every area and every in every aspect and respect but um, we're supposed to use wisdom there are certain patterns that we see through scripture through preaching the word and through discipleship and 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 various things but we're supposed to be using wisdom as a church of what are the buttons we're supposed to be hitting are we hitting those are we being truth in our community are we a beacon of hope and light? And so um, one of those examples that's pretty predominant just in broader American culture is, is the pro-life movement versus the pro-death movement. And so what we have is, is we have a pro-life movement who says is anti-murder, anti-abortion, and, and preaches that pretty publicly. And then we have those on the opposite side who want to... Uh, keep the killing of babies and abortion. And when you look at just, this is maybe just an idea to give a stark example is when you look at the pro-life movement, and if you go to the Miami Valley's Women's Center, or if you go for the Walk for Life, or if you go to the, uh, the yearly prayer we have, um, the pro-life movement has, you can go to every person on that street and say, what church do you go to? And good chances are they are part of a church. It's not just like around the, the the majority, a little bit over 50%, it is a Christian movement. And so, um, and what does the, the, the other side say? When you look for the, uh, you know, even just in, in recent times culturally, we have, you know, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we have calls for violence. Well, what else would you expect from, from people uh, who don't want don't want to keep their babies or don't want others to. And so that is a very, very light-centered theme in, in our culture. And even if you go down uh, to the women's center, they're not just 
helping women to make a choice to keep their babies. They're, they're having afterbirth care. They're having help with families. I've personally taken the dad's class. There's tons of people in this church that have taken the mom's class, class and the dad's class. They give economic resources. They give education. Uh, there's ways for you to become a better parent. And this goes on and on and on, and the list continues. And that is just simply a Christian movement. But what do people of darkness say? They don't care about women. They just care that they have to keep their babies. Well, that's just not true. If you were to just ask that question, is this true? It just simply isn't. Um, because almost every women's center provides the same thing. And we as a church are to call to do the same thing. And so um, that's just a stark example in our culture. And so we're called to be people of the light. We're in a, in a society where humanism and various ideologies have taken over, and it seems to be very pessimistic in the moment for some, that we should take great hope. The Lord has put us here for a reason to be light. And what we want to do as a, as a church is just take what Jesus said, is that um, if we go back to Matthew, Matthew 5, he says, let your good works go before you, and the same way let your light shine before you so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we're called to not just be a, a church who is pietistic and we talk about religious things in here. We're called to be a church of good works. We're called to be a community of people working together to advance Christ's kingdom through good works and preaching the gospel and to spread light. And we have to use wisdom in what are, the, what are those hot buttons? What do we push next? Where do we go next? And so um, expect opposition. It always comes. Uh, expect as, we become, as you become more light, even if you speak out in your workplace or, or whatever, uh, it's becoming very public, it's very, Karen, becoming very common that if you were to say something uh, against, like, you know, something kind of unpolitically correct, you're now committing hate speech. And um, you may get fired or whatever. And so be prepared for opposition. Be prepared to put your faith, trust, you know, fully in the Lord, but expect what should happen next. Uh, it is at least a sign that you're on the right track when there is opposition. And so we're called as a church to continue to do good works, to spread light, to continue to preach the gospel in every realm of society, in every realm of life. And so Christ himself suffered as he, uh, as he went about um, as the covenant head and in, in being the light. And so as we, as we get ready for communion and our call to the table comes from 1 Peter 4.3, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God has rest, spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. And so it says very clearly, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And so when we come to the table, we're sharing and when we're proclaiming the lordship of Christ, but the death of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. And so you'll actually, in a public sphere, you'll actually rejoice more when you're persecuted or when you have opposition, the more you die every day. We're called to be faithfully dying to our flesh, dying every day, 
Uh, and when we have real opposition, we'll actually handle that better. But we rejoice. And so this is a, as a, as a supper of celebration. This is a supper of death, but of the most joyous death. And so when we suffer with Christ, the immediate response should be rejoice. When we get insulted for Christ, the immediate response should be rejoice. And so don't come to the table somber. Don't come to the table sad. If you have sins and need to repent, repent. But rejoice because Christ has suffered. Um, you know, a lot of us get, uh, when we, we're, we're, we live it pretty safe in America. And but we think about, you know, we have, uh, and we're start, trying to start a church in India, and we have plenty of contacts there. And India is the 10th most persecuted nation in the world. And they have active laws that they're pushing and have that if you have, can't have anti-conversion laws, which they use to arrest Christians. You can't say anything about Hinduism largely um, uh, or without fear of getting arrested. Um, but we should rejoice because that means we're counted worthy to share in Christ's sufferings. So as we come to the table, rejoice because we are promised that if we are righteous and if we shine light, we will suffer. And we come to this table to die to ourselves and to dine with Christ. So please come.